session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. So I have to do some book reviews today because they didn't have a show on Monday. And because of that, I'm also joined by some guests who were supposed to be with me Monday night, but unfortunately we didn't have a live show. But Neda Fadai and Tala Khelgati from the Iranian student group at UCLA are here, and they'll be joining me later on in the show to talk about a peace panel event they are having at the UCLA campus next Thursday, November 21st, but we'll talk more about that in later segments of the show. But to begin with, um, I'll do the book review from last week, but the book for this week is Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World by Sarah Rose Kavanaugh. Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World. And so... um, There's always polarization in politics, but it's become even worse lately. And so this book looks at some of the psychology of why and how we're affected by others and that emotions and thinking can be very contagious. So looking forward to, I started it, but reading the rest of that and sharing it with you on Monday night's show. But the book that I'll talk about today is Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story by Angela Saini. And I really, really enjoyed this book. So it's looking at research that essentially for a long time had been saying that women are inferior to men and how, as the title says, uh, how science got women wrong. And so um, she goes through the history of science related to women in different areas of life and actually follows the lifespan starting before birth and looking at babies and then women and then even into old age and looking at theories related to menopause. Um, And so I found the book fascinating because when we look at research and science, people often think, well, science is telling us the truth. Science is this self-correcting field. So it's always going to figure things out and get things right. But uh, as there was a quote in the book, something along the lines of science doesn't exist in a political vacuum. Science is affected by the ways people think about things, the ways the scientists think about things, culture and society. All those things still affect culture, uh, affect, excuse me, science. So as much as we'd like to think that there is no influence of these things because science is away from those things, we have to be aware that the scientists will bring their own thoughts and values into their research, and that will affect the results they get, the interpretations they make, and all of those types of things. And also related to that, what's so important is that 
You know, people can say, oh, I think women are this way or men are that way. But when it's coming from scientific fields, this unfortunately can further reinforce stereotypes. It can further reinforce even oppression and persecution because now we feel like there's some kind of scientific justification for treating people less than or thinking less of some people, in this case, women. Uh, also, Angela Saini has another book called Superior, which is related to, in a way, this same topic, but about race and the return of race science. And I've purchased that book and looking forward to reading it probably in a few weeks, but kind of the same kind of theme where science would say, okay, well, let's say uh, African-Americans are less intelligent than whites using tests that were made by whites and they were already prejudiced in certain ways and looking for certain things and then confirming that and of, of course again perpetuating these myths that somehow certain people are more intelligent less intelligent superior inferior which causes lots of damage so as scientists people have to be very careful that what they are creating as far as their theories and what their research tries to support or prove or disprove has huge impacts on society and so um, I, I read it or saw an interview she was giving and she said that of course she was looking at the theories as that she talks about in this book but also looking at the scientists themselves trying to understand them better because that gives us a lot of insight and um, so one main takeaway from this book is that men and women are not that different and on a lot of characteristics where we think they are so different and we've heard things and I've heard things, men are better at math, at spatial aware, uh, awareness, these types of things. The differences seem to be very, very small, if anything at all. But oftentimes we've been told for so long that this is the truth that we unfortunately take it as some kind of actual truth about us rather than maybe just some scientists who had some theories at a certain point in time. And so I was thinking about how when we think of science and we think it's such an objective thing, of course we're affected by the assumptions we have. So I was thinking of if I gave you a deck of cards and I said, hey, can you check if this deck is okay before we start playing? And so the assumption is it's going to have 52 cards. And if you count it and you get 52, you're like, yeah, it's right. But if you got 51 or 53, you'd probably say, wait a second, did I count it right? And you'd recount the cards to see. But you wouldn't recount if you got 52. So this shows us that when we're looking for something, we're more likely to find it. And so if we see something that confirms our belief, we think, yeah, that's the truth. If we find something that's not consistent with our beliefs, we tend to write it off. And that's what you see scientists doing. If they found something that said, oh, look, men are more intelligent than women because they already had that assumption, they said, see, this proves it, that men are more intelligent than women. But if they found something that said, no, they're actually close to equal, oftentimes scientists would not pay attention to that or think something was wrong in the data. Now, um, she goes through different types of research. One of them that's also important and relates to books I've talked about before is brain research. And as I talked about in last week's book, The New Mind Readers by Russell Poldrack, uh, when people do brain imaging studies, we can think that it's very clear-cut what's going on. But actually, there is a fair amount of interpretation that's happening. And so sometimes they'll put graphs and they'll say, look, this is a men's brain and this is a woman's brain, and look how different they are. And they're very colorful, usually showing the areas that are activated in blue and red and different colors. And we think this is very real 
and very concrete evidence of a difference. But as she points out, this science often is a lot more up to interpretation, and we can see how the scientists at times can look for certain things and then confirm what they are looking for. And so she makes this point um, in the book that we have to be very careful about the articles that we read about science. And so newspapers and now online, they love to pick up what you can call sexy headlines and sometimes sexist headlines where it says something like men are this way and women are that way. And people want to click on that and see what it says. But very rarely if it says men and women aren't that different, people don't pick up those stories as much and they don't get as interested, so they don't get as much attention. But when you actually take a closer look at the science, you see that it's much more balanced in showing that men and women really aren't so different in a lot of ways. Are there differences? Absolutely. Um, she also talks about, you know, sometimes we think, well, this is woman's work and this is men's work, and it's always been that way. But when things have been a certain way for so long and in all of our own individual lives, it's at times hard for us to think of things as different. So, for example, we think of blue for a baby boy and we think of pink for a baby girl. And it almost seems like those things are like innate, like how could they be different? But it wasn't in this book, but I, I forgot which book it was in, that I read last year that it actually said there was a while where blue was actually for girls and pink was for boys. And that was just accepted back then. So a lot of times the things we think are so innate and always were this way and have to be this way, they're actually assumptions that we have and things that seem to be true because we've always seen them in that that manner. And so with work, we see the same thing where we think, well, a man is out and making the money and doing those things and a woman's work is to stay home and, and to take care of the kids and the cooking and those kinds of things. But when we look at different societies around the world, especially hunter-gatherer societies, we see that this isn't actually always the case. There's huge variability in the types of work and the amount of work that women do in different cultures and different societies. And it doesn't seem to be some innate thing that women are better at this and men are just better at that. And that's it. It's much more gray. So in some societies, women are even involved in hunting. Not only that, um, a lot of societies and cultures now, these hunter-gatherer societies, we see that the women provide a good amount or even sometimes a more consistent amount of the food that's being consumed. So it's not that they're not involved and not doing much and it's not important, but actually they are doing much more. Or when it comes to sexual behavior, this is a big area where um, there's a lot of research and a lot of theories about men and women and how they're different and how it's been quote-unquote proven one way or the other. But she had a title related to uh, female sexual behavior, which was choosy but not chaste, meaning that it's not that women have no desire for sexual uh, interactions or sexual sexuality, but that society has pressured them in certain ways. Men have tried to control them, to, and part of what helps with that is to say they don't have much of a desire or it's not healthy for them to have that desire when it doesn't seem to be the case. And so you see evolutionary biologists who are trying to quote-unquote prove that women don't really have as much of a desire as men or that women don't have any benefit from um, being with multiple men, but men have lots of benefits to be with multiple women. And there's something to that in some ways, but to say there's no reason for the woman doesn't seem to be true. One example of this is some cultures believe in something called partable paternity, meaning that more than one male can be the father of the child. 
They don't see it as uh, kind of a black and white, that it's one person that's the father. And so when a woman has been with multiple men, she's more likely to get resources from multiple men or they're more likely to have that child be protected. So there could be evolutionary advantages even for that woman to be with more than one man. Or genetic uh, heterogeneity. If you have been have children from multiple fathers, then it's more likely that none of your kids will all carry the same type of uh, mutation or genes that might not be good, and that way you're more protected to make sure your ins- your offspring have a higher survival rate. So, um, or overall survival rate. So the book gets into the science at various ages from, again, that boys and girls are different before birth. And are there some differences? Yes, there does seem to be some differences, but the differences tend to be quite small. And this is also something we see with races where what we actually observe is there's more diversity within a given race than there is between races. So there's more diversity within men and women than there really is between men and women, but we like to think of them as so different. So I really found the book fascinating and very interesting, and I highly recommend it to anyone. Um, Actually, I saw online there are some campaigns to try to get this book into schools. Uh, She's in the UK, Angela Saini, so I think it started in the UK, but also in other countries, um, because I think it's so important for both boys and girls, men and women, to become aware of the science and the history of the science and to recognize that a lot of the things we assume that are truths about men and women and how we're different don't always tell the full story and so i really enjoyed this book that was inferior how science got women wrong and the new research that's rewriting the story by angela saini and after the break i'll be joined by neda and tala from the ucla iranian student group and we're going to talk about the peace panel that is coming up next thursday november 21st on the ucla campus we'll be right back Welcome back. As I mentioned before the break, I'm now going to be joined by two students from the UCLA Iranian student group. So I'm going to introduce you to them with some brief bios before I bring them on. Um, So Neda Fadai is a young Iranian-American who was born and raised in Los Angeles after attending Los Angeles Pierce College and obtaining her associate degrees in STEM and social sciences. She transferred to UCLA as an ecology, behavior, and evolution major. She is currently a senior and is serving as the director of academic outreach for the Iranian student group at UCLA. She aspires to become a conservation veterinarian to unify her love of animals and the environment. Neda, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And then, so Talo Helgati is a third-year economics and public affairs student at UCLA and is currently serving as the vice president of the Iranian student group after having served as a chair of finance last year. She originally hails from San Jose, California, and is happy to be living in Los Angeles with such a vibrant and rich Iranian-American population. She aspires to practice law and then become a professor one day. Tala, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And as I mentioned before, um, you guys have planned a great event and that I'm very uh, grateful and very happy that I'll get to be a part of, and that is the Peace Panel, which will be next Thursday, November 21st, um, at the UCLA campus, and I believe it's from 6 to 8 p.m., at Royce Hall, and we can get to some of those details. Um, but Ned, I kind of said some of like the, the generals about it, but can you tell us 
more about this event, the peace panel that you guys have planned. Yeah, sure. So um, basically, uh, Los Angeles is one of the greatest diasporas for the Iranian population. And we wanted to hold an event, which is something ISG has never done before, a, a panel on peace. And we wanted to unite all the different minority backgrounds that make up the Iranian population. And the reason it's so important is because uh, we're student leaders and um, we we see not discrimination really. Personally, I don't see that, but we see like stratification between the different Mm -hmm. Iranian groups and I feel like it's so important to once we graduate to learn how to overcome these uh this separation between all of us and to be able to um become a united front like just a a, um a united uh Iranian community Mm -hmm. because like at the moment I don't feel (laughs) that we're like that well I think you're you know you're right and kind of in a way relating to what I was talking about in the last segment about men and women and seeing them as different, but then recognizing there's so much diversity within those and they're not necessarily so different from the outside. But yeah, within the uh, Iranian community, there is lots of diversity and different from religious backgrounds to cultural, even backgrounds, even to language at times in different dialects. And there's a lot of ways you use, you know, the stratification and disunity can be there. And so I think it's so important, even first just within the Iranian community to build that unity uh and i think you guys have planned this event to try to to try to take a step in that direction um i think that's great i'm very happy to get to be a part of it and so what was the when you say peace like was it peace as in like within uh, you know because obviously we're not talking about a specific war but was it more just to be unified to then be more peaceful within each other i I was wondering what that term also so i can think about what i have to say next (laughs) week when i'm there but what was that term peace like what was you know that and i think tala can also add about the motivation for the event but or maybe she can maybe you can say what yeah uh sure uh so i think netta touched on this but um i was talking to you guys outside and we were talking and i was saying that maxine waters said something that i think is really profound which is that if you're not at the table you're on the menu Mm -hmm. um and what that means is that if you don't have an organized front if you don't come together as a unified community to advocate for yourself, which I feel like the Iranian-American community honestly lacks in a lot of ways, then you won't get what you want out of maybe may it be national politics or mm-hmm. in terms of societal interpretations of what the community is and what it's all about. And so I think specifically within our community, within I think largely the stratification exists amongst religious lines. Um, so we have like Iranians that are Baha'i, Zoroastrian, Jewish, Muslim, secular, and all these communities siphon themselves off into mm-hmm. separate groups and without a lot of cross collaboration. So when we say peace, we mean dispelling the myths um, amongst ourselves that exists about that exist regarding the different groups that that are in our Iranian American yeah. or Persian community. No, I think that's very important. I think our culture is also very hierarchical. Like we look at who's you know status and who's better and worse and trying to make sure we look a certain way to other people and i think unfortunately that contributes to some of this of like paying so much attention like quote unquote where do you come from or who are you and creating divisions rather than unifying the way i like to look at this i've been thinking about it recently is like it's very important to understand your heritage and your roots and those things there's that's not bad i think the problem comes when we start to compare based on those things of who's better or who's worse. So because I have this background, it makes me better than other people. I think that's the wrong way to go rather than, oh, I, I, 
understand and recognize and connect with my beautiful heritage and the history of certain people, but it doesn't mean that makes my people, quote unquote, better than other people. I think that's where we have to be very mindful of how we think about those things. And the analogy I use is when you have kids and like everyone loves their kids because they're beautiful and they love them and every child is unique, but you wouldn't say my baby is better than another baby or my child is better than, yeah. (laughs) So we can look at our future that way, look at the kids with that way of saying, I love my child and I think it's wonderful and beautiful, uh, but I don't think he or she's better than other children. And so our past, we can say, I love my history, but does it make me or make my history better than yours? And so I think we can hopefully have both that understand ourselves and be connected to that, but don't use it as a way of, you know, putting others down and putting ourselves above one another. Yeah, I think that's a really important point you make and that something we hope to touch on on the panel is the idea of educating our community on the history of others that exist within the community. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the existence of like Iranian day, like Saturday schools or day schools that teach Iranian, young Iranian American children, this is the history of our community. Who These are the diversities that exists and here how, here's how we can all get along. I think these structures and these yeah. institutions don't exist like nationally mm-hmm. right now and our community could really benefit from these kinds Absolutely. of things. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And so, um, as I mentioned, I'm very uh, fortunate to be part of this panel next week. And maybe, Netta, you can tell us a bit more about who else is on the panel. So, yeah. again, if you're in the Los Angeles area, hopefully you can come out to, to UCLA next week, Thursday, November 21st. Uh, but, yeah, who else will be on the panel? So, we have four panelists, and, of course, you are one of them. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy um, to be there. And so, our other three panelists, one of them is Dr. Benjamin Rad. He is a UCLA professor, and he specializes in, or he's his background is political science. Oh, and I should also mention that this is an interdisciplinary panel, meaning that every panelist is uh, is very well-versed in their own background, and then with their knowledge, they can talk about how we can overcome the issues we have with their own perspectives. And so um, our first panelist, Dr. Benjamin Rad, he is, his background is political science. Um, and then our, another panelist is Dr. Nushin Jahangiri. She is a doctor at Kaiser Permanente, but she's also on the uh, core education group of the Zoroastrian Center. And she was born and raised in Iran, but, and she got her uh, um, religious license i guess you would say her credentials uh in iran and then when she came here she started educating um uh teens on uh the zoroastrian culture religion faith and then um one of our other panelists is dr nadir saidi who is a professor at ucla as well and his expertise is on the baha'i faith um i actually took his class and he focuses a lot on peace. His research is a lot on peace. And um, our moderator is Dr. Nushin Valizadeh. And uh, we were able to get into contact with her because another person on our board took her class. And over the summer, she was teaching a sociology class. And she does a lot for the community. So she uh, also teaches at USC. And uh, she also has an MBA in finance. And she's also part of um the let me see what it says the usc center for race and equity so yeah she she cares a lot about like just peace in general but since she also is iranian american uh she's very interested to see like what everyone has to say Mm -hmm. about um peace within the iranian american community 
Nice. Yeah. And I'm very interested to hear what um, everyone has to say along with myself because I have to think about (laughs) what I want to say, but I've definitely been thinking about it because I'm excited to be a part of um, the event. And I think it's great you guys are bringing people with different uh, backgrounds, interdisciplinary group, which um, also speaks to what we're just talking about, bringing people different backgrounds, whether it's educational, religious, whatever it is, and recognizing that we have to work together. So again, if you're in the LA area next Thursday, November 21st, and tickets are free, right? Yeah, so uh, it's open to the public and it's free. Um, There's no, like, you don't have to get a ticket, just come the day of. And we'll be really happy to see you there. Yes, yeah. I'll be happy to see you guys there too. Um, and maybe you know we'll talk a bit more about the event, but it might be good to talk about the Iranian student group in general. Now, um, I went to UCLA myself, and they have cultural shows, the Iranian student group, and I was in the 2005 cultural show, and I did some Baba Karam dancing. Now, I'm expecting this time around I'll do less Baba Karam, maybe some, but probably less than I did last time. But I know that the Iranian student group has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, we were talking about this before uh, we came on the air, about how this type of of an event is not something that has been really done Mm -hmm. before, which I think is a great direction that that the Iranian student group is taking. But Tala, since you're the vice president, maybe you can tell people a bit more about the Iranian student group at UCLA. Yeah, I'd love to. So the Iranian student group, or we call it ISG, is a network that hopes to unite the Iranian-American diaspora on campus at UCLA. And we feel an especially heavy burden to do so, given the fact that UCLA is such an Iranian-American, a Persian campus, Mm -hmm. and that we are in Tehran, there's so much Iranian culture around us. And so we serve, or we hope to serve, as a home for Iranian-American students who come to campus and aren't sure how to get more in touch with their culture or have been in touch with their culture and want uh, entity on campus that reminds them of home, that mm-hmm. gives them the sense of community. So we do this in a lot of ways. Um, as you mentioned, this is, and as Netta mentioned, we, this type of educational event is very new for us. The eras, areas in which we focus more on are community building in the form of we have events such as Osh Night. So we serve mm-hmm. Osh Night, to, we serve Osh to students. This is usually in the first few weeks of fall quarter. So when the freshmen are getting acquainted with campus, we usually do this in Bruin Plaza. So they see us, they know that we exist. Um, and then from there, we build on, we have things called Mehmunis. So they're just glorified parties with a <laughs> lot of Persian music. And it's, it's there so that people can feel like, oh, there's a community of students here that are interested in these kinds of things. And then Last year, our two biggest events, I would say, we had a fashion show um, with the help of Paki, the Persian American Cancer Institute, um, and we helped raise money for them. But also, this was an event that was to like raise awareness about cancer within the Iranian American community. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I would say, the event that is like that you were a part of and that is the biggest one that we do is the culture show. So this is our culminating event. It happens at the end of spring quarter. And it really ties together all of the values and mission statements that I stated that we have. And we have dances and skits and songs and performances from Iranian-American students for both the Iranian-American community and the broader UCLA, Los Angeles community to get in touch with um, what Iranian culture really means. Very cool. Yeah, you guys are doing a lot of great things. I think actually that event, the fashion show, that was in the spring or? It was winter. Winter. Okay, because I think my dad and brother actually went. Uh, it was was it in Ackerman? Exactly. Yeah, I think they went yeah. to it. I can ask them. But yeah, I remember they were there, and I heard it was a great event. It but it seems like you guys are doing a lot of things on campus, uh, trying to give a voice to the Iranians, I think, on campus, but also kind of like a home so people can come together and connect and, and feel, like you said, when 
especially freshmen coming from different cities sometimes, new experience, like things like the Osh night could be a nice way to give them a sense of community and connection, which I think is so important, which I think is great. Um, so the, the peace panel again is next Thursday. So if you're in the LA area, just show up, right? I, I know parking at UCLA, when I went there, it was like $7 and it became $8 a day. Now I don't even know w- how much it is a day, but parking, <laughs> I know is maybe it's good to Uber there or find other ways too, but um, it's in Royce Hall, I think room yeah. 314. Yes, exactly. Royce Hall 314, um, like you said, from six to eight and um, open and free. Yeah, to open everyone. to the public. Yeah. And you don't have to be Iranian. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a student, anything. It's really open to anyone who wants to come and can, maybe you can tell uh, Netta a little bit about the um, what the night will be like I mean is it are there questions from the audience or is it just from the moderator okay yeah so uh, basically we will start the panel off with every panelist giving maybe like a 10 minute uh, talk about uh, where they stand currently maybe uh, a few experiences they've had growing up um, if they've like experienced discrimination and how they like what they did to overcome it, stuff like that. And then after that, um, there, there will be like the actual panel and this will consist of questions that, um, ISG board has written mm-hmm. and Dr. Nushin Valizade has, uh, added to and, uh, changed. And that will last for about 50 minutes. And then after that, for 15 to 30 minutes, seeing uh, how many questions the audience has, there will be qu- uh, the floor will open up to the audience and um, any questions that are asked will um, be discussed with the whole panel. Oh, so. That was good. Some of that was news to me, too, so it's good for me to hear. But <laughs> yeah, that sounds I, I like that it's going to be open to the audience. So that has that because I think these types of events, you know, you're bringing in some people who will share their experience and expertise. But then we want to make it a conversation and um make people feel like they can be involved in the discourse as well. Now, I, I think we can talk a bit more about the event. Um, we're, we're at a commercial break. But if you guys are okay, we can talk a, a bit about being Iranian-Americans on campus, what that experience is like. Also, for me, cultural identity uh, is an important piece of our psychology. And seeing what people go through, teenagers tend to at some point go away from their cultural heritage if they were born, especially like, let's say, in the United States. But then sometimes they come back to it. And college is a time where people are finding themselves as well. So maybe we can talk a bit about some of those elements for you guys, yourself, yourselves personally, but I think also ties into what the Iranian student group does. So after the break, I'll continue my conversation with Neda and Tala from the Iranian student group at UCLA. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined now by Neda and Tala from the Iranian Student Group at UCLA, where next week, Thursday, November 21st, from 6 to 8 p.m., they are having a panel on peace. Um, I'm very happy to be a part of that with some other very distinguished guests who will be joining, and it should be a great night of discussion, and you can even come with your questions or just come to listen, but if you are in the L.A. area, I hope to see you there. But since I have you here, I wanted to talk to you guys a bit about um, being yourselves, of course, but being on campus, what it's been like, even joining a group like the Iranian student group, if you had hesitations or you see people have hesitations, because cultural identity, identity in general is a very multifaceted and complicated issue, but with culture, it can have its own, uh, you know, types of things that come along with that. So either one of you 
who wants to talk about either your own experience first. You're both pointing at each other, tarofing about who should, <laughs> go, who should go first. Uh, but either one of you could start. Neda, go ahead. Yeah. So um, when I first started at UCLA, I thought it was really difficult to make friends. Um, since I transferred, it, it's just the education or the way classes are set up at a community college are so different that mm -hmm. in class, you just whoever you're with, you you're, become friends with them. But then I came to UCLA and there's just like no time to mingle with your classmates at all. And the only way to meet people is to join clubs. And so um, obviously I joined ISG because uh -huh. I, I love like the Iranian community and Iranian culture. And it's something I wanted to get closer to. Um, now, though, basically my entire friend group is uh, the Iranian student population, mm -hmm. which is fine. But like for like a while i was like i think it's kind of strange that like i'm only friends with iranian people mm -hmm. like maybe i should like try to expand my circle um which i am still trying to do because i think it's good to be uh to ha to not be so like exclusive you know uh have like a wide group of friends but um it's just the iranian student group is so like their arms are always so open they're mm -hmm. so welcoming and um as you mentioned it's like it's like home away from home uh and before the show, we mentioned how when you're um, second generation Iranian American, you don't really feel American. You don't feel Iranian. And you're kind of confused, like, like which group do I belong to? But whenever yeah. I'm with ISG, um, I feel like there's enough people that are recently came from Iran, and then people like myself who like are like the first people in their family to go to college and whatnot. Um, and so it it I feel closer to my culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, by being in ISG, so. yeah, yeah, I think you. Um, there's so many things you said that maybe you want to like you know comment on it, but because <laughs> there's a lot in what you shared. But one is that it is it, it, this interesting balance of, of course, we feel comfortable with sometimes people maybe similar background. But you mentioned you also don't want to limit ourselves either, and so I think sometimes people even more even with immigrants, sometimes they want to be around people like from their cultural background, but it makes it harder for them to then assimilate and acculturate mm -hmm. to the country they're living in and that you know has its own challenges so i think it's good to find that that balance of okay of course it can feel nice to have you know share some commonalities with people that you're spending time with but we don't want to limit ourselves um and then the other part about being bicultural or being from you know being an iranian american so you don't quite feel as iranian as the very persian people let's say or iranian people and you don't feel quite american with names like Neda or Talo or Farid, I felt that too. People couldn't even say my name. So you don't feel quite like you fit in either way. And there is this like middle ground or quote unquote no man's land you can feel in. And so it's nice to have like a group where it's like, oh, we're all, you know, we're going through a similar thing. So again, I think it's not bad to have these groups. I think it's actually great, but we want to make sure it doesn't limit us either where it's like that's our only group or that's all we are is like part of this group. But I think having the Iranian student group on campus is a great way for people to find people that they can connect with and also to connect with their culture, which I think we talked about a, a bit before, too, about how a lot of people, you know, when they're kids, they might like their parents' culture. Then when they become teenagers, they kind of rebel or go against that. And then in college, uh, sometimes they, they're trying to find themselves more, and that can involve a lot of things, including going back to their own cultural heritage and trying to understand that better. But Tal, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about your own experience in, in that same realm. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Northern California in a relatively vibrant Iranian-American community, but I ended up going to a Catholic high school. 
And so in high school, there were two Iranian, or three including myself, on campus, one of whom was my best friend. Mm -hmm. Her name is Manush. And we just weren't, were lacking this larger network of Iranian Americans in, in where I grew up. And so I came to college kind of desiring or, or wanting that community and seeking it out. And I know a lot of students who end up joining ISG have similar similar ways of thinking. Like they come up to us at the Enormous Activities Fair, like I've been looking for you guys. I can't believe I found you guys. They're so excited that we are a community that exists for them. So for me, that's that transition to ISG was, was very natural. And my parents have commented on this. It's made me a lot more in touch with my culture, a lot more Persian. I listen to Persian music in my free time. My Farsi has improved. I, I can cook Persian food. And I think a lot of this is due to surrounding myself with people who are of the same culture. And that's what you said is like, that's the unique benefit of involving mm -hmm. yourself in groups like this. But I do think that there is this stigma that comes with t being in touch with your culture. You, you want to seem, and, and I, I know value judgments on my end, but I think on in the minds of some people, you don't want to seem like a fob or you don't want to seem mm -hmm. too into Iranian culture because at the end of the day, like you're an American. Oh, let me explain fob for people who are not oh, familiar. Yeah, sure. for, that's fresh off the boat. It's kind of, it almost can be used pejoratively and sometimes Definitely. it is, but basically it's saying someone who only recently has come, let's say to the United States, so they're just off the boat even though most people are coming via plane. But yes, but yeah, but people right. can have that feeling of they don't want to look too quote unquote cultural or almost like ethnic in mm -hmm. their, you know, whatever their background is because it means they're different from the mainstream. And so, yeah, it does create this, this challenge. But yeah, go ahead. And I think, in fact, to draw on that, for the Iranian-American community, for a lot of communities that identify as like marginalized or a bit... Um, mm -hmm are a bit in the minority, this is also like a coping mechanism, kind of a sense of security. Like when our parents came here, they lived through like the hostage crisis. You didn't want to be known as an Iranian back mm -hmm. then because there was so much anti-Iran sentiment. And so slowly we've seen this drift away from our culture. And, and the goal of ISG, or at least what we hope to accomplish, what I personally, what I really, the reason I get involved is I want to make being Iranian cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I want people to come to our booth a little uncertain. I've had people say, like, well, I don't even speak Farsi. I don't know if I should do this. And it's like, no, a lot of us don't speak Farsi, and that's not a measure of how Iranian you are. It's just the fact that you are Iranian that makes you enough to be an ISG, and we hope that perhaps by your involvement in this club, you get even more in touch with your culture. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's the I think that's the function of ISG on campus, and that's why I think it's, it's so important to, yeah. to get people involved. Yeah, it, it, it is so complex because I think people, like you said, there's a wanting to connect with it, but then, like you, you mentioned, it could be uncool in certain ways to be too, let's say, Persian because um, people have some associations with that or it might make them feel like they'll be left out. You know, so it almost feels like you have to pick sides, but hopefully it won't have to be. And I think most people are very complex. Like me, myself, I'm very, I think there's a lot of Iranian in me, but also very American and also mm -hmm. other cultures as well. So maybe it's not such a dichotomy either, but, and I see that progression in myself where I was younger, very much like, like the Persian stuff. Cause when you're a kid, your parents are your everything. They're kind of like your gods. So you're connected to them. Then when you get into the teenage years, your peers become more that, uh, you know, who you define yourself by or who you want to be like. And this is something I do with so many parents and they have a challenge with this. That they're like, you know, when he was a kid, he was so wanting to hang out with us. And now he says like, drop us off three blocks away from like <laughs> their friend's house or don't do this. And they don't want to spend time with us. Uh, and it can be very challenging, but that's a natural part of our psychological development is to then get closer to our peers and they become kind of like the role models and how we measure ourselves. Um, and in college, it's still part of maybe that later adolescence phase, but I think people become much more open to exploring 
different aspects of their identity, you know, and I think you guys are in the midst of that. And it seems for both of you, um, or Tala, especially you were saying, being part of the Iranian student group has gotten you much more in touch with your Iranian side, almost to the surprise of your parents, like they didn't see that side in you. Do you remember ever going away or was there a feeling of, okay, being less Iranian will make it easier for me to not blend in, but especially, uh, you know, fit in at your school in high school? I didn't really feel that. Um, in all honesty, mm-hmm. I just think that because there are no structures there to reinforce, especially in high school, this Iranian-American identity, it just naturally wasn't something that I drifted towards. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt a sense of pride um, in having like a unique culture with such a rich history, with such great food. I do think, though, when I draw back even further past high school, back to elementary school, I would bring uh, I'd bring kebab kubida to school sometimes. <laughs> My parents are really big on the home cooking, so it was, I would never get school lunch. I would always have some sort of Iranian food. And our food tastes great, but sometimes the presentation is not the prettiest. And yeah. so I would well, bring, and the smell of, of oh, kubida, I mean, that's, that's not... That's true, yeah, not, that's true. Yeah, yeah. thankfully it's a, a radio show. You can't, like, it's not a, you know, there's no smell involved. But that was that's always the thing I remember. It's like a classic immigrant child uh, experience. It's like opening your lunch in the, mm-hmm. and then everyone's smelling it. Like, what is, like, you know, not... Right. It's not the smells they're used to. Yeah. But right. so you had that experience. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'd have people even say to me, like, your food looks like poop. And it would it would oh. insult me. It's like my dad made this yeah. for me. I, I mean, then I would feel embarrassed and not want to bring it. I'm like, I should have the nachos on campus. Instead. Right. Nowadays, there's no way I would choose nachos over Kubi Day. But uh-huh. right. back then, it was just, that was what that was what pushed me in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that's the stuff that, I, you know, uh, immigrant children or children of immigrants deal with these types of things where they're different in certain ways and sometimes you don't think of these things but it's even the food you eat can make mm-hmm. you seem like an outsider seem like uh, you know um so different so netta for you too have you felt that being part of the iranian student group got you closer or was it always a big part of your life being iranian i think it's a little bit of both uh-huh. so i've always uh unlike you i i never like tried to distance myself mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. with the food i brought like turkey sandwiches instead <laughs> of like gorma sabzi or something but um, I, I always try to stay like in touch with my culture. So in high school, I was part of the uh, Persian club. Um, but now I, I'm making more of like an proactive uh, choice to uh, get more involved. So mm-hmm. for example, I'm taking the Persian language classes because I never knew how to write. Uh, and I, your professor is a longtime fr- family friend of ours. Yeah, um, Hanum Hagi yeah, yeah. actually also uh, helped a lot with planning the panel. I thought I'd give her a little oh, shout really? out. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, very she, nice. She did a lot for us. And so. I don't know if I'm going to get you in trouble. I think you're currently supposed to be in her class oh, at yes. this moment. Yes. So, I th- <laughs> so this is your doctor's note, yeah, that you're allowed to miss class today. I think she'll understand. Yeah, hopefully she'll understand. But yeah, so but you were taking Persian, Farsi language, yeah, or exactly. Persian language. I know that's also big. Uh, yeah. People say Farsi a lot, but really the more appropriate term, I think, is Persian for the yeah. language. Yeah. Yeah, and so... And part of that is because I'd go on Instagram and my family would message me and comment in Farsi and uh, Persian and I, <laughs> I couldn't read it. And so I'd send a screenshot to my mom or I'd uh-huh. just like maybe like put a little heart emoji and just feel like they're complimenting me. That, that's <laughs> and wishing me the best. Um, but now I can read it and it's really exciting and I feel like I've, I'm closer to my family in Iran. So it's, uh-huh. a, it's a good uh, thing that's come out of trying to um get cold, closer to my culture and yeah you know. yeah and this is um you know you guys have similar maybe but different of course in their own ways your experiences but i talked to a lot of persian parents like because there's very often this feeling of how do i get my kids to be more persian or to speak the language more to you know this or that and a lot of it has to do with the fact that when we talk about culture of course you guys both 
talked about the food, which is a, part, a big part of culture, but also uh, culture reflects morality and living a good life and a bad life. And I was talking about men and women in the first uh, segment, but it's also about what may, what is a man supposed to do and not supposed to do, and what is, you know, all those things about what is good, bad, right, and wrong. And so parents can have this fear of their children going down the wrong path. And so you hear this a lot of Persian parents or all immigrant parents saying, oh, my kids are going to become like the American kids in this very <laughs> negative way, that it's the wrong way of living. And of course, this feeling that they're losing their connection to them. So if we're both, you know, if I'm Iranian and that's such a big part of me and now my kids don't want to be that Iranian, that means they're going away from me. So I think for parents, this can be very difficult to to face that tell. I feel like you wanted to add Yeah, really quickly. Yeah. And then their kids at the same time. If right. your kids aren't going to be Iranian, their kids probably mm -hmm. won't be as Iranian. And it's not even this idea that we must marry Iranians, but it's more so like even if you are marrying a non-Iranian, your Iranian identity needs to be strong enough to influence both your partner and your kids mm -hmm. in the hopes of passing on this tradition, yeah. this beautiful culture, and not losing it. Right, and that's like the, that's the topic for a whole other show about marrying inside or outside <laughs> of the, the, the Iranian community. Um, but in this last couple of minutes, we can come back to the event again. I'm very excited to get to be a part of this event uh, at UCLA, which I, I went there myself and was I was telling you guys very great years there. I loved uh, the experience. But um, I'm so happy you guys are planning this type of an event, and I hope there'll be more of these in the future, and I'll kind of put it out there now on the air that I would love to be a part of them if there are some <laughs> more in the future. Based on how I do next week, though, you guys can, can make that decision. But it really, I think, is great to talk about peace, talk about unity within our community, um, because I think you're, you guys are right. You guys were talking about it in the last segment about how there is, unfortunately, a lot of disunity or even a lot of prejudice, uh, mm -hmm. both within the Iranian community and also with outside. I see it very often with people I talk to, work with, that it's almost embedded in a lot of our ways of talking, that it's almost good or okay to be racist or even sexist, actually, but to promote some of those types of, those stereotypes. And I think we would hope that as Iranians, first, we can be very unified within ourselves, but then be a source of bringing about more unity and peace and not contributing to those unfortunate negative social factors in the world. So um, that was kind of some of my own thoughts. I don't know if you guys have any closing remarks about the event that people um, should know about or that you wanted to share before we go to another commercial break. just want to stress this is the first time we've ever done anything yeah. of this nature. I want to also add that the event is explicitly apolitical in that we won't be coming at it. I know identity is in some instances yeah. inherently mm -hmm. political, but for the purpose of not isolating anyone in the community, we want people to bring their own lived experiences, share and learn from each other in that way. So yeah. Neda, any closing remarks? No, I think Tala said everything Yeah, perfectly, that sounded great. So, so um, yeah, thank you both of you, Neda Fadoi and Talo Khelghati from the Iranian Student Group at UCLA for joining me on the show today. Uh, and again, the event is next Thursday, November 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. at Royce Hall on the UCLA campus. If you've never been to UCLA, don't worry, just get there probably early, you know, at 6 p.m., because parking and walking around could take a little bit of time. But then if you ask people, there's so many people that can help you find Royce Hall. So don't be intimidated by trying to find the place. Just uh, get there early. And if you do come, please come say hello to me. But again, Neda and Tala, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Excited to have you on the panel. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. And so I'll be on after the break taking calls and talking with you, but um, they'll be leaving now. But I appreciate them for coming in. Uh, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back.
back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi, thanks for calling. How are you, Dr. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Okay. Um, you've been talking about uh, the Iranian students coming to America and mm-hmm. also about the equality of men and women in your, to- in your talks. And yeah. I wanted to give some input about them. When I came to America, it was 1969. Yes, I'm a very oldie person, but dollar was only seven to one. And now the students are coming with 15,000 to one the dollar uh, from Iran. And that makes a lot of difference. Of course, yeah. Yeah. But then when we came here, nobody knew Iranians. I was the only Iranian in my campus when I went to Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. Mm-hmm. But then when I went to Purdue University, there were more students there. And at that time, they didn't even know what yogurt, you know? <laughs> we introduced yogurt to them. So it's definitely a, a different time. But you're right. There's also, uh, you talked before about the, the financial, but other things too, people knowing about Iranians and what they know and different things definitely change from, uh, you know, different times. And so the Iranian students now or immigrant students now, of course, will face different challenges to uh, Iranian students in different times. There was no internet. And they, they, they just said, you know, one model of camel, your father is driving Mm. And they they thought we just go around with camels, you know. Well, I'm sure sometimes they genuinely thought that. Sometimes I know that's also used as kind of like a, a racial okay. slur or insult to, to to say things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, and in general, explicit racism has become less uh, now. It's you're you still see it, but fortunately less than before. Um, but I'm sure back then it was much more of that explicit racism of people saying certain things. Actually, I asked Neda and Talo about any prejudice they maybe have experienced on campus or discrimination, and they both said nothing really explicit that they, they had experienced. So thankfully, we do see less well, of that. Uh, at the, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, at, at that time, we, we did not have hostage taking. They did not think of, Ira- of Iranians as terrorists uh-huh. or things like that. We, we didn't have those stuff yet, you know. We, it was during the Shah, it was during the time that, you know, our passport was Hmm. About men and women equality, I'd like to say something because okay. it makes me angry about it. Sure. Is that I don't think uh, we should ask for equality. We are above men. Women are, and ask me why. Is that I can do whatever a man does, uh, even heavy stuff. Some women uh, do heavy, I mean, lift heavy stuff. But what I do, men cannot do. They cannot give birth. They cannot breastfeed. They cannot have periods. They cannot. So none of those things that we can do and you can't is not. I'm not you, Mr. No. Hyde. I'm talking <laughs> men. I understand. Uh, it's not at all written in the law that when you hire a woman, it's not just the salary we're asking for equality. We need a day off during the month. We need f- three months paid for pregnancy, a year for breastfeeding. These things is what we're after, and then we call it equality. Sure. Um, I, well, so, uh, I, I think, you know, actually in some of the, this book, um, of course, was called Inferior, the one I was talking about by Angela Saini in the first segment. It was looking at um, how science, unfortunately, has made this state, almost general statement that women were inferior to men, and now there's science that's challenging that or even showing that the original science wasn't really... It's not science. Science, yeah. and Quran, Quran and Torah and... 
these well, religions that yeah, but these were I mean, but but the problem was I mean as uh, I mean was that these were scientists, but they were as all scientists do, bringing their own beliefs into what they were finding and their interpretations. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, that was further perpetuating these stereotypes and this way of thinking. Um, but what but you were can saying... Can I ask you something? Like, isn't that one sperm and one... Um, egg, one, yeah. Egg. Uh, egg uh-huh. would be creating and your DNA, one sperm. So that's one sperm that tells you who's the father. Right. It's just, you know, DNA really blew all these religious things that put women down and, you know, we were created from the rib of man. Forget it. We're created, of course, this thing, Koran doesn't say it, but Torah says it. So we are created from the same egg, divided to two, divided to four. You see what I mean. No, I think, I mean, but that's the part where I think, I mean... Uh, there's something to be said about the you're saying the superiority of women, and even in the book, there's some people she talks about some writers who've mentioned that that women can be superior, especially for the future, in some ways. But I think we have to be aware when I what I heard you saying is one of the issues that people can have with feminism. So to me, feminism means about bringing about equality, and as you said, equality doesn't just mean. If the paychecks are the same, that's the end. There's so many different ways that it's embedded into culture and society that we have to look at. Uh, but sometimes what people can be turned off by feminism or don't even join in the fight for equality is that they think that feminism means hating men no. or being anti-men. We love them. Okay. We adore them. <laughs> but what you but, but what you expressed? Right, I'm like sure. Absolutely. I, I'm, that's when, what I'm saying. Uh, that I have paid pregnancy. I cannot be in a meeting when I'm breastfeeding. I was in a meeting, and, you know, my breast started uh, giving milk because mm-hmm. at that time you give milk. They should have told me go home, stay three months or four months. I mean, Japan has this. Sure. Japan I mean, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think actually, and it's not just for women that we do this. It's for all of society is, you know, as, whatever portion of the society we hold down in any way or are not meeting their needs all of society is going to pay the price and of course they pay it the most but it's bad for everyone um and so i'm agreeing with you but what i felt in what you were saying at the beginning was an anger towards men and so no 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 it's not okay. a, it's anger towards society sure. towards religious people it was misinterpretation yeah. of women's physic you know we don't have to prove that we are like men I'm not. A, I'm not a man. I'm a woman, but right. I could have equal rights. Well, that and that's the whole thing is I'm that I'm not saying that you know. Your father thinks that if I, sorry, okay, I'm. Not L- yeah, let's that. not go. Anyway, I mean, because I'll talk uh, to you about whatever I, I think I can talk about. For the time, and please tell Neda and the young people to don't ask for equality. Ask for justice, for the sameness. Your physics should be included in it. That's all I'm saying. Which I agree with, but I think even what you're saying, you know, not. But you don't want sameness if you're saying that women might need particular things that a man wouldn't, and that should be valued equally. That if a man needed it, it would be provided. So I think it's we have to be aware there are some. I think the differences have been very much exaggerated, and that's what this book was talking about. These differences between men and women and their brains and their bodies. Of course, there are some. But they've been very much exaggerated, and I think that's not good. And we should recognize that we're much more similar than different, and that. But yeah, it, even if I, if I 
I was just like you, I couldn't give birth either. Sure. So something is different. Of course, absolutely. Uh, that, that doesn't mean I'm inferior. I'm superior. That's... I mean, I'm fighting for superior, <laughs> so I get equality. You know what I mean? But that's it's the like part. You fight for B, so you get a C. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I get what you're, yeah, you're saying you want to go for superiority, hopefully get to equality. <laughs> yeah. But, but like I said, I want you to think about the, what it creates in people. If they hear you coming with that notion of trying to make superiority, it could mm-hmm. then make a lot of men feel threatened by it. Now, men sometimes might be threatened even by equality, which we see that a lot where the groups in power don't like equality because they feel like it's becoming unfair, even though it's becoming more balanced, but they feel like they're losing something. But a lot of people can be turned off when they see feminism as um, somehow anti-male or trying to make women be superior to men and put men down. It could make people less likely. So I know you say you're shooting for your going for the B to get the C, but sometimes if you're shooting that high, people won't even join your fight to, to, to help you. And that's something I've noticed is well, recognizing that. Absolutely. And and that's the and that's well that's the that's the experience. I think it's very understandable what any group that gets persecuted or treated as less than is gonna understandably have a lot of anger and resentment towards the other group. Absolutely, that makes sense. And that's why I think it's also so important for uh, the group that has been doing the oppressing or has been having the privileges to recognize that and to acknowledge that and even in some way apologize to make amends. And this is why even I believe in the United States when it comes to African-Americans, because of slavery, there has to be a very clear acknowledgement and apology for what has happened to try to repair the past. It doesn't take away the past, but can help us move forward so that there isn't that um, underlying anger and resentment, resentment which is built up because of the years of oppression. So with men and women, there is a similar theme where um, the women have been mistreated. So of course, there's going to be anger. And now it's like, okay, well, now if we're going to get some power, we're going to put you down the way you put us down, which is an understandable reaction. But I think at times it will lead to less progress overall um but again it's, well, it's easier like said than pendulum. done the pendulum has to go the other yeah. way all the way up until comes back to the middle it's at and times it's at the other side we want it to go the other way yeah all the way up and then come back to the middle no i that yeah maybe that way we get something because ignorance is is winning it's ignorance for against blacks ignorance against jews ignorance against uh, women so all of these things comes roots in ignorance and religious uh, mm-hmm. well i think and, and and you know you mentioned this something before about uh, equality i think that's the thing is that we can recognize even of course every human being is unique so we have differences but that recognizing that the value of every human has to be equal and that's what we're going towards it doesn't matter how you're different the value of each human being men women gay straight race whatever it is mm-hmm. has to be valued equally and we're still Muslims. not there no God, people, what they say? Atheists, yeah, whatever, whoever it is, their value uh, is, is, is important. So I think that's exactly. what we're moving towards, yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Sure, thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So um, those are some you know, important topics that were brought up that I think uh, when we look at the fight for progress, as she mentioned, sometimes the pendulum swings from one end to the other. There's reactions that happen. And uh, she said that might be what needs to take place. Is, is it have to happen? I'm not going to say it does have to happen or definitely doesn't. But as I mentioned, for me, it's so important to recognize 
um, what's happening. So even for me as a man, recognizing that the benefits and privileges I get being a man, I don't have to necessarily feel bad about them or ashamed about them, but acknowledging them is important. And especially when oppression has taken place, um, and for me this is very clear in the United States when we look at slavery and what happened after slavery, and even still we see that there's systematic discrimination and racism in the United States, that if there isn't a very clear acknowledgement and a desire to make amends for it, we're going to continue to face the pains of slavery. So a lot of people say, well, let's, why do we have to still talk about slavery? It happened, you know, it ended like legally a hundred, what, 50 years ago uh, in the United States. Why is that still an issue? But is that we haven't really made amends for what's happened and it's still causing damage. So to me, until we make amends, until there's acknowledgement, we're always going to face that pain um, of what's happened. So we can't go away from it because the scar hasn't healed. So you can get injured, and it's not that you keep thinking about that event, but if the scar hasn't healed, it's hard for you to move forward and not continue to feel that pain. And that scar won't get healed until there is acknowledgement. When we get hurt by someone, when we're angry with them, uh, healing takes time. But one of the things that can accelerate that healing is when it's acknowledged and an apology is sincerely made. And one of the things that can greatly interfere with that is when it's not acknowledged, denied, and minimized. That makes the person feel hurt. Um, I use this example a lot because maybe I, when I drive, I can feel a little bit maybe subtle road rage at times or get angry. But when someone cuts you off and you're driving, if they acknowledge it by putting up their hand and saying sorry, you tend to feel a lot better than if they don't. Just that acknowledgement and subtle apology can make you go from being angry to calming down. And so similarly, that's, of course, a very, very small um, type of transgression. But when we're talking about even bigger pictures, even more, there's a healing power of acknowledgement and apology that needs to take place. And so, yes, with men and women, the same thing does have to happen, that I think it's important for men to recognize the privileges they have gotten and the ones they still get, and the ways that men throughout history have put women down in various ways and continue to do so. Um, I do think it would be helpful that for the feminist movements, movement, movements, if you want to call it that, to recognize that if they come with too much anger towards men and putting them down, it can interfere with the progress, that's my opinion, um, rather than promoting it, and that can have its own effects. But thank you to that caller for sharing her thoughts. We'll go into another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lockwe. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to talk with you. My pleasure, um, too. Recently, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend after four years relationship. And unfortunately, in the past two months of the relationship, she started seeing other people on my back. Mm. And I understood about these things. And uh, she came to me and she said, I don't have any feeling to you. And she somehow left me. On that time, to be honest, I was very upset. But uh, the 
very bad incident happened for me. It was about uh, like a couple of weeks ago, which I saw her in a party with the other guys in, in a very bad shape, like they like kissing each other or have a bad uh, touching with each other and so on. Hmm. And after that incident, to be honest, I had a very, very bad feeling. I couldn't uh, go back to the work. I got a very bad depression. I lost my appetite. Uh, yeah. I was very regretful what happened, why he broke up, and so many other things. And I started Googling about these things, and I understood uh, heartbroken syndrome or so- something like this. I don't know about that. And there is something, uh, it's like a disease which is exists. Uh, in the psychology and I believe such a thing happened on me and to be honest I called you to get the help from you or mm. get your idea about that and see uh, how I can help myself I already went to the psychiatric I started seeing psychologists they prescribed me like antidepression or Xanax and so on I couldn't sleep sometimes uh, at the night I'm mm. very under stress I don't know, because I saw that scene, which is like a trauma, it happened on me, or uh, or I don't know, to be honest, yeah. what happened on well, me. Well, you know, so, I mean, of course, it sounds like what you went through was very painful, but and I want to get some more of the details so I'm clear on that. Now, heart ba- heartbreak syndrome, I mean, it's definitely not an official diagnosis. I don't know. I mean, it, it just sounds like the pain from a breakup, which, which happens, and it can be very devastating and very hurtful. Uh, And it's interesting because for some people, having a label on something they're going through can make them feel bad, like they're getting judged. For some people, it makes them feel like, oh, okay, there's a name and other people go through what I'm going through. It can feel better. But what's even more important for me is for us to get a little bit deeper to understand what happened and what's going on and what you're feeling, because that can help in the healing process, understanding uh, what you are experiencing. So just so I'm clear, you guys, you dated for four years and then you broke up. Did you say, how long ago did you break up? Uh, it was uh, two months ago. Okay, you broke up two months ago, but you said for the last few months of the relationship, you found out she was dating other people? Yes. To be honest, in the in the past uh, three or four months of the relationship, we had some issues with each other. We couldn't talk with each other. Mm-hmm. We had some issues. I tried to work out on these things, and I was hoping by the time... Like the time goes by, things get better. But I have seen many lies from her on the weekend. She went out, for example, to her friend, but she ended up in another place. She started dating like two more guys. And in the last step, she came back to me and tell the truth, said, hey, I, I saw two other people. There's nothing happened between us. But from now on, I want to stop relationship with you. I want to go see the two other guys and so on. Hey, listen, I'm very honest with you because I'm saying and I'm, I'm telling you at this point. By the way, I told her, hey, listen, when, when, when you said the truth, it doesn't mean you did a good job. Yeah. I know, I appreciate you tell me the truth, but it's not a good job. I, was, I had a feeling right. for you. I was waiting for you. I, I have, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're right. Up- of course oh, you're upset. And what was yeah. going on in the relationship? I mean, yeah, that's the way you're describing it sounds a little bit... Um off that you know like, yeah you're right for her to come and say almost like she's doing you a favor by telling the truth yes that part's better than lying but 
what she was doing, you were what she was telling you the truth about was hurtful. So what did what was going on in the relationship? I mean, four years is a long time. And also, how old are you and how old is she? So I get an idea of like where you guys are in your lives and what's going on. Yeah, I'm 36 and her, she was 38. Okay. And were you guys and, thinking of, have either of you been married before? Um, me, no, she, yes. Okay. Um, and were you guys talking about looking for marriage, having a family, those kinds of things? To be honest, once she had a little conversation about the marriage, and at that point, to be honest, I somehow a little refused, uh, or refused, reject that. Uh, but I, I, I asked her to be a little patient for that thing and the time, and she agreed on that. But the main concern I guess she had on me was was about my family, my lifestyle, and you know you are working too much. I love to have fun, and and even in the la- in the past uh, months of the relationship, she said, "Hey, listen, I had a one uh, marriage before. I don't want to have any marriage anymore. Uh, I just want to have you know spend time or something like this. You know what I mean?" So, what did you want though? Did you want marriage, or you did not want marriage? Uh, on that time, she told me I didn't want that. But at the end, when I saw she was about to leave and she was very, you know, so on. So I, I told her, hey, listen, I, I would agree with your criteria. But she told me, hey, I lost my feeling. I don't have that feeling anymore. So, so it seems like you were less wanting to get married, but more not wanting to lose her. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's true. I just want to <clears throat> keep her in the relationship. But I was agreed to marry her, you know. Yeah, but agree to marry her sounds like like you're getting pressured into a not I want to marry her. Uh, but I'm I'm still the the relationship seems a little bit off for me because you were together for four years, but the way you describe it has like a casual feeling to it, which is a little confusing for me. That's why I was asking what you guys were looking for because four years is a long time. Um, yes, and, uh, Dr., uh, yeah, let me tell you something else. She had one child from her previous marriage. Okay. And uh, I had a good, uh, maybe, uh, contact with her child. They were very good. But I always had a feeling uh, her child was a boy. And when I saw her boy, I said, hey, listen, maybe our marriage can cause some damage to your child. And even my my family, since you, are, you have a baby, it's going to be very hard. You know, I explain this situation to them. And it's going to be a, like a fight. I can't do that. But it's going to be, I have, I have to go to the fight with my family. So let's, let's just uh, live together, you know, casual living together like others. And we're going to be happy and so on. You know what I mean? I, get, I mean, I kind of know what you mean, but it's, it's still, I think the setup wasn't a great setup to begin with. But how old is her child? Uh, nine. Nine. Uh, actually, ten. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, again, the what you guys were doing seems unclear as to what you both wanted. Did you guys want the same thing? Your family... So did you hide the relationship from your family or your family just was not okay with marriage? Uh, I hide the relationship from family. Okay. See, that that is also a problem. Um, yeah. for have a four-year relationship. And you were living together? Uh, no, we never lived together. But we, like... Three, three days a week we were together, you know. Yeah. While the child was not with her, we were together. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it, it, it seems like there there's some things, if you're asking me about the setup that you have to look at, because the relationship started, you were about 32, and I'm not sure what you're looking for. You don't have to get married, but what you're looking for, and then having a relationship that you're hiding from your family for four years, 
Um, she might have been upset about that also. She might have felt yeah. like you were not accepting her or accepting yeah, accepting her basically by not accepting her and the kid and telling your family. So I don't know, was that also an issue in the relationship? Uh, yeah, she was she was upset. She was upset uh, about my family mindset. My family mindset is about, it was about like business, working hard, you know, have a plan in life. But she was like, hey, let's be casual. Let's just spend little now, spend the time, you know, like a, let's just have a good time. When I talk about like saving and so on, she was not that much happy about saving, and you know what I mean. Hmm. She, okay. she was just live in prison. This is the concept we have, you know, differences. By the way, to be honest, I like to, I like to marry her. I love her on that time. I don't mind, but because of the child and the family issues, it was like obstacle for us, you know, to move forward. And that's why I suggest her to just yeah. be together without marriage and. For a life, like nine, ten years, maybe we can marry or so on. But the point is, um, she, she agreed with me at first. Okay, but when the time passed, I guess when she saw the, when you know what, she got married with a very like she, when she was like twenty years old. She was with a very long-term marriage. After divorce, she just uh, got know me. She doesn't have that much experience to me with you know, outside society or dating other people. And I, I, I have a feeling uh, she thought, she thought maybe other good people, other suitable people maybe sitting outside dating for him, for her, you know what I mean? And that's mm. the thing I believe it has happened. And maybe maybe even in the future, they, after you know she got a the problem, they may want to get back to the relationship. I don't know. But to be honest, the scene I saw, it was very traumatic. Yeah. You know, I have never seen her for with other guys for a long time. I've never thought she, she, she's going to date other people while um, I was, you know, on that relationship or so on. And to be honest, I couldn't, you know, do anything. I lost weight. I, I was, you know, my all my body is like hot, you know what I mean? Yeah. I lo- and I don't know how I can help myself. I can uh, maybe I, I understand. So many people told me maybe this relationship is ended. You should accept the fact you you, you shouldn't continue these things. So many things are broken, and so on. But uh, I'm suffering about this happens. You know, I'm, I even regret for for example, do some she maybe proposed me. I should accept that immediately. I I blame myself for something like this and. Yeah, well, there's a there's a lot you're obviously dealing with, and the way it ended was very hard. Of course, that she was dating other people that sounds really bad. Of course, and then that you saw her at a party not that much after you guys broke up, and being very, I guess, touchy with some other guy must have been very painful and a little bit odd. Like that she was moving on that quickly. Um, there seems to be that's I just the way you describe the relationship. I don't get a very strong connection with you and her it just seems like you guys were together i'm sure four years there was some closeness and love but it just feels like a very disconnected thing so she just was already dating other people and then she was with someone else and so i don't know how much you were ready to invest into this relationship how much you wanted to really be in it and then now that you lost her you want her back but i don't know if really you wanted her and so something you have to think about for yourself there's still the healing i can understand you're hurt from this but of what got you in this situation that you stayed with four years for someone where it really couldn't become totally serious um and, and had to stay in this casual place what do you really want i don't know if you really want to be 
with someone and very close with someone. And so, and you chose someone that she seems to be very flighty, like kind of all over the place. Like, you know, don't save money. Don't, everything is about just now in the moment. And of course being present is good, but this doesn't sound like being present. It almost sounds like there's a pressure to, to do things uh, um, in a way that doesn't seem very stable. So it's just a little strange to me when I he hear you talk about the relationship. But of course, your pain, I can completely understand, of course, that she was dating other people and then it ended that way. And then within two months, you had to see her. This that visual, of course, is going to be very hurtful because in your mind, you were still um, probably feeling for her. So it was almost like seeing someone cheating on you even though it technically definitely was not or it wasn't cheating but it probably felt that way like you said a trauma so there's a lot of things for, for you to obviously be dealing with but I would also want you to look at what was going on in this relationship what did you get yourself into and why to be honest uh, uh, by the time we got each other to be honest we both of us didn't have a good situation she was like a student I was looking for a job and we somehow, our life path, you know, uh, get together because we both want to be with someone. You know, yeah. we want to fill our time. But we did very good. Both of us, after these four years, we were, we were both in a very good situation. What do you mean? In life? Yeah, uh, but see, no, even... Right. Financially and I mean mentally, I believe maybe. No, I know, but see the way you talk about it as if like the relationship served a purpose. Like, okay, we were both lonely, so it was good to have someone, and then by the end of the relationship I had you know, financially I was in a better place mentally, but it doesn't seem like the relationship was the priority. I don't get this really sense of you and her being so close and connected. It just seems like even in a way we're acknowledging it. It was just convenient. You both needed someone. You were both kind of in a not a good place, and it was your lives, the cr paths crossed. But when your paths just cross, they kind of uncross over time too, where it's like there's not much there other than just the convenience of it. And so maybe for her, as you're saying, there was a convenience. She was alone. She wanted to be with someone. But because she wasn't that connected to you, she then wanted to be with other people. Now, maybe that was just more on her end. But um, I don't get this sense of a really strong connection between you and her. Okay. To be honest, uh, you know, we have a very good uh, conversation with each other for everything. You know, for many, for many like hobbies, things, uh, yeah, yeah, we are in the same page. And I believe uh, when we talk with each other, I don't know, we help each other. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. to be honest, as you said, when I lost her, I, I, now I understood how much I needed her. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah, but that itself is telling... I mean, I'm sure it was very painful, but it's like it was hard for you to acknowledge her, the, the, her when you had her. And, you know, uh, we're bas basically at a commercial break, but I do want us to continue the conversation. And we want to look a little bit also at your own past and history to see what has gotten you here. Because, I, like I said, I feel from you like you don't want to really have someone 100 percent, but you don't want to be alone either and so that's maybe what helped create this situation with her now the way she was at the end of the relationship of course was very hurtful but it's going to be important for you to try to understand it better too first to heal from what's happening now uh i agree with some of your what you said your friends are saying that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope here for this relationship based on what's happened but so for you to learn from that and then so 
what you want in the future is more clear and you don't get yourself in a similar situation. So I'm going to go ahead and put you on hold and we'll talk after the break, okay? Thank you. Uh, Sure. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, crew with the caller. Let's go back to now. Caller, are you still there? Hello. Yes. Hi. Okay. So um, before the break, you were sharing about what you've gone through recently, a breakup that happened about two months ago, and you're feeling a lot of heartbreak and heartache from what happened and how things ended. And uh, you said it's really been affecting you. And there's a lot of different layers to this, of course. Um, but you've mentioned how much you've been hurt now, but I was saying, I also want you to think about what happened and how did you get here? So even during the break, did you think at all about what you think made you get to this point, why you chose this type of relationship, or do you even see what I'm saying where I say the connection wasn't exactly what I would expect from a four-year relationship? Yeah, yes, Doctor. Actually, I was thinking... We had a very good companionship with each other. Mm-hmm. We had a very good, high-quality intimacy with each other. And when I was with her, I was really in a very com- in, a, in my uh, comfort zone, and I was very happy when I was with her. When I was watching movie together or something like this, and these are the things which you know uh, help us to last this relationship for four years. You know, and. These are the very positive things I can say about her. She was very smart. She was pretty, very good, in very good shape. And all these things, I just helped. Uh, I went through this relationship. Okay. Again, I'm sure there was things you liked about her. I don't want to say it was there was nothing there. I just, the, the sense I got from how you talked about it was in four years, that feeling. And even the way she ended things was very much like there was no, at least from her end, it could have just been she decided with like this disconnection that, oh, I, I went on dates with other men, but nothing happened, and now I want to date other men. It just seems like I'm not sure exactly what was going on with her, but there wasn't this feeling of commitment at all. Um, or maybe she was very, very unhappy and didn't express it to you and then acted in this way, which I don't agree with at all. I always think you should yeah. end whatever you're in first, but... Um, it just seems like something strange about the way things ended, you know? Yeah, to be honest, uh, we have we went to the psychologist before, and psychologists evaluate both of us. And the psychologist already warned me about a little bit borderline symptoms yeah. she had. Mm-hmm. She had actually, and also she told me she's like a boy, you know what I mean? She can move on from a relationship very fast, and she. She's not that much a, like romantic or uh, how to say emotional person. I can't say it might be a character first of all, and second, as I said, she doesn't have that much experience dating, you know, other people because of, uh, I mean, marriage or my relationship. And these are the factors I believe cause her behavior on you. You know what I mean? Possibly, yeah. There was, you know, that I I obviously don't want to diagnose her. And even when you say borderline tendencies or something, that's not really a diagnosis. But that was the feeling I got something so unstable about the way you just at least are describing her. And now I know you said she said she's like a boy, but I think men are very capable and should be emotionally connected to their partners. Um, But I get the point that she was making. And that's something that I think it does make sense in what you're saying that after a four-year relationship, she's, you know, 
all of a sudden was dating two other people um, and came back to you very matter-of-factly, like it's not that big of a deal. And then two months later, you see her at a party and the way you were describing the behavior was very touchy and, over, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, there's like, something I mean, a little bit off there. Yeah. Yeah, let me, let me explain something more. And the guy he actually she met, I know she's like a guy which is financially or uh, much better than me and maybe even his appearance is a little bit better than me and she has I don't want to mention her job his job actually but you know he's much better than me you know what I mean if you well see that let me stop you there that's the and that's where that's what I wanted to bring up too in this uh, before we finish uh, today is um, that usually what you experience first of all her just saying it probably brought this up but even more seeing it uh, this feeling of competition or feeling not good enough compared to these other men, I'm sure got triggered for you. And that's part of what you're experiencing isn't just the heartbreak of losing her. I think it's part of that pain of how it's making you feel about yourself. Maybe, yeah. Maybe because uh, yeah, that's true. But uh, by the way, mm, I don't know. Most people told me you need time. It's a matter of time you sure. feel this problem. And I got a very bad depression, and to be honest, I, I have a very regret feeling uh, for for the for the years or days past. And what do you mean by the even, regret for? Now you've mentioned before regret that why didn't I say yes to her proposal? Yeah, Is that I, what you mean? Okay. Why, yeah. Why didn't I appreciate those times? You know, she was too much in love with me. I couldn't treat her better. Maybe to. Stop, I mean, to spike her in the relationship. How, the by the way, how, yes. when was that that she mentioned the marriage? In the third year. Oh, third year. Okay, so it wasn't like quick. But the way you're describing her, you know, th you maybe felt something also that she was all like, a little bit too much in some ways, like all over the place, the way you described it. And so maybe on one hand, you liked that because the way you're describing her, a woman like that, or it could be a man, but a woman like that can make you feel very good because they show attention in a certain way that's very intense, that that can feel good. But then you didn't really feel like something was really there. And maybe you were kind of right because how quickly she moved on from you is a sign of that. And so I know you're feeling pain, but as I said before, to me, the pain is not just because she's so good for you and your relationship was so good. It's that, of course, it's painful for a four-year relationship to end and for it to end in this way with basically some type of infidelity, but also her so quickly moving on and you seeing it. Um, but for me, your pain is more about learning about why you were in this type of relationship, choosing this type of woman in the relationship, and then also the way you think about yourself, that when you saw her with this other man, it brought up all these feelings of you not being good enough. And those are some of the pains you're facing. So to me, um, she's not your solution being with her, but she's bringing up a lot of your problems within yourself that in a way can be good to help you grow and heal. Um, and you mentioned time does heal, but it also depends what we do with that time. If someone breaks their leg, but the next day they try to walk on it, no matter how long they wait, that bone will never heal. So what we do is important. I'm happy you went to see a, a, a therapist and a psychiatrist. That's going to be part of the healing process. But what you do with the time will determine if time will heal or if it won't heal what you're going through. Yeah. Um, uh, may I may ask a question. Sure. Do you 
think uh, seeing other people or dating other people, why, you know, I, I, I still think about her whenever, wherever I go, I see her, memories, you know, pop up on my mind. Mm-hmm. I think seeing other people is a, is a solution or I need time get healed and then maybe I get back to the, you know. Yeah, well, uh, it depends on what you mean by solution. And the reason why I say that is because, um, you know, drug will also be a solution. Like, it'll make you feel good. If you have some drugs right now, it'll cheer you up for at least a moment. But and if you date other people, it might give you a slight distraction. Although what you'll probably experience the way you're describing it is you'll be thinking about her so much and comparing them to her so much that you won't get that much out of it and it will be a little bit unfair to the person you're going on the date with also. Um, And a lot of people will give you that solution because for most people, what they see as your problem or what they don't like about your situation is that you're sad. And they say, okay, you're sad. How do we take away your sad feeling? Okay, go be with someone else and it'll cheer you up. But that doesn't mean that you've healed and moved on. It's just like, you know, using the broken leg analogy. Oh, we're going to just put all this morphine and painkillers in your leg and go run around and have fun. Well, it's like, no, you might need to rest for a little bit. So I think actually it's better for you not to just try to escape from the pain, but actually go into the pain and understand what's going on. Um, If you date right now, you probably won't be able to create a good relationship. So it would be just something casual to distract yourself. And also, let's not forget how you said the relationship with her started, that you weren't in a good state of mind. And I think that's part of what contributed to creating a relationship that didn't have a solid foundation and didn't start for the right reasons. So if you were to start something now, it might make your pain shorter in some ways. Uh, To me, actually, it would just be covering the pain, so it would still be there. Um, But to me, it would just create new problems for you that wouldn't actually be genuine healing, but people mistake the lack of pain or reduction of pain with healing, and they're not always the same thing. Yeah. Um, um, can I ask one more question? Of course, yeah. I'm, we have about five, six more minutes. I'll stay with you till the, till the end, so go ahead. Awesome. You, uh, you just feel low self-esteem on me because so many people said, hey, you know, you're much better than her, you know, educationally, family-wise, you know, situation, you never get married, no child, no, no child, you know, you're a good-looking guy, something like that they told me. Yeah. And I was thinking, um, why, I, as you said, why you start such a relationship from the first day, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, is it because of low self-esteem on me or do you, do you, what other things, I mean... Well, yeah, I mean, low self-esteem is this very, and I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it, and I think it's very important. It's a, It could be a very general term, um, but definitely to me it sounds like uh, you know, self-esteem tastes, seems to play a part in a few aspects of what you're talking about. One is starting the relationship with her, and to me, you not wanting to get that close and you know, choosing someone that you couldn't get that close to because of her situation could be because you didn't want to get so close because you didn't know how someone would be if you fully committed to them, would they want to stay with you? What happens there? The way you've described her in other ways tells me she's probably the type of person that can make you feel very good initially as far as giving very uh, extreme types of attention and compliments. So maybe that's something that appealed to you. Was she that way? Like when she would make you feel good, it was very good. Like she would talk about you in a very, very positive way. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, that's, and that's the thing is that that can make us, you know, feel really good and happy in that moment, but it's usually not that genuine as you were describing. And then for me, where you really see it is the way you talked about this other guy she was with, um, that he was, you said he was better, he is better than me. 
that part we it definitely seems to be related to self-esteem as well. I think that's why seeing him and her together, of course, there was the trauma of just seeing her with another man, but it seems like seeing her with him also uh, created a different type of wound or opened up a different wound or old wound about how you feel about yourself. And that's what's been so devastating and I think pushed you even deeper and darker into the, the, the depression. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> one more question I forgot mm-hmm. to tell you. I had a connection to her, which I asked her about this behavior. Why you saw me? At least you can have a, you know, have a respect to me. Or why did you behave such a, you know, with this behavior, with this actions, with touching or so on? Yeah. And the answer I got from her, she, she somehow told my friend, I wanted him to just forget about me. This is what the answer. That's why I did such a thing mm. when he saw me in this way. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's possible, but I think generally someone making a decision for someone else, you know, I'm going to hurt you because somehow it's in your benefit long term isn't great. Uh, you know, I don't think that's fair. It could be why, but we know why she did it. We probably won't know. It could be what she just said. That was it. Um, it could be she was trying to hurt you the way you've described her. There tends to be a feeling of wanting to hurt the other person. So yeah, she maybe knew it would bother you, and so it wasn't she had such a good intention necessarily. She could have just wanted to hurt you to hurt you. Uh, maybe she felt rejected by you that you didn't want to marry her, so she wanted to give you that same feeling. It's hard to say if that's what it was. Um, I would spend less time, though, trying to uh, analyze and understand her completely and why she did what she did, because we won't get that. But it's focus more on yourself, why you did what you did, why you picked her, why the relationship went the way it yeah. did, and then why you were so hurt. Um, of course, it's painful, but the way you're describing it seems like it's bringing up something deeper, which is very painful, very difficult, but it also can mean that you can heal in a way that makes you much stronger on the other end. So I know people say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and I like the quote, although I don't think it always does because sometimes we just can get hurt. But in this case, it can make you stronger if you actually go into the pain. If you avoid the pain, you won't actually grow from it and heal. And that's why I'm glad you're going to therapy. And, you know, I would recommend going to therapy for a while. Don't just think, well, I'm going through a breakup. I'm going through a depression. Let me go for a little while. I'm going to feel better. But really go into the this uh, in a way of like, I get to learn about myself better, figure out what's going on, and then see what I want in the future. So I hope you'll go for, you know, even at least a year of therapy. Don't think of it as like a short-term thing, but a long-term commitment. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you so much for calling. Yes, it was nice talking to you. Best of luck to you. Take care. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World by Sarah Rose Kavanaugh. And again, a big thanks to Neda and Tala from the ISG, uh, the Iranian student group at UCLA, for joining me to talk about the peace panel that is next Thursday, November 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. on the UCLA campus at Royce Hall. If you're in the L.A. area, I hope to see you there. I'll be part of the panel uh, for that night. All right. Thank you to Ghazala here in the studio and everyone who called and listened. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.